It's Friday 15th of September and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. David Wilder here coming up. Why two measures of the US economy are saying completely different things. Then is that cause for alarm? But first, I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi there, Neil. Hi there, David. Let's start with China. This past week, we've had a reserve requirement cut, another trim to one of the PBOC's policy rates. August data overnight coming into Friday shows signs of economic life. Does that mean the great China hard landing scare of 2023 is over? Well, I think what it means is that the debate around the hard landing was always kind of slightly framed in the wrong way. The idea, of course, was that China was on the cusp of this big cyclical downturn, driven in large part by problems in the property sector and, and over leverage there, and that this would lead to a collapse in aggregate demand, pull down the economy, lead to big bouts of deflation that would spread across the global economy. We push back against that idea and we've discussed in this podcast why. And it's because we think it's less about cyclical weakness and more about structural weakness. So in other words, we're not seeing a big collapse of aggregate demand in China. In fact, our China activity proxy has been pretty stable in, in recent months. Rather, it's the potential growth in China has slowed and in particular, that the property sector needs to start to shrink back as a share of GDP. Now, all of that means that it's a longer lasting economic problem rather than this kind of very short term cyclical crunch that's, that's coming. And really, the data over the past week or so have borne that out. As you say, the August activity data stronger than expected, consumer spending in particular looking quite healthy, and then additional policy stimulus coming through to less about the triple R cuts. I mean, that's, that's fiddling at the edges. But in fact, the local governments have been instructed to issue all their allocation of quota of bonds in August, spend them in the next month or so. I think that's going to give a bit of a prop to the to the economy too in, over the coming months. So I think we're probably looking at a bit of a cyclical upturn over the next month or so in China. But because this is a structural problem, these kind of concerns about hard landings aren't really going to go away, I don't think. There's going to be something that kind of keeps coming back onto the onto the agenda. Yeah, we'll have much more to say about China. I know our, our China economic outlook is, is going to be coming out in the next week or two as well. And we'll have much more in there about the near to longer term outlook. But let's turn to developed markets. Look at what central banks have been doing. Uh, ECB this past week delivered what we think is its last hike. Bank of England is going to do what we think it is its last move this coming Thursday. And the day before that, the Fed won't hike, signaling that it, it finished raising rates back in July at its July meeting. So that's it for these hiking cycles. When are the cuts? That's going to be the narrative over the coming week, I think. We've got, the, as you say, the, the Fed meeting on Wednesday, the Bank of England meeting on Thursday. We had the ECB over the past week raising rates, but really a kind of a, a dovish hike interpreted by the markets at least. And the, the debate is going to be not so much are these central banks done hiking. I think most people accept they probably are. Most investors accept they, they probably are. But when are the cuts coming? Now, I think the key point here is that anyone expecting central banks to give any kind of steer on this front is doing this wrong. They're not going to do that. And the reason they're not going to do it is that having already been behind the curve, scrambled to catch up in this tightening cycle, having got monetary conditions, financial conditions to tighten, they're not going to risk loosening them once again by bringing rate cuts back onto the agenda, even if it's months and quarters and potentially even years ahead. Indeed, we got language to that effect from Lagarde over the past week saying that interest rate cuts are not even a word they have uttered. 
So I think we can expect more of the same from other policymakers. They're simply not going to be drawn on rate cuts for the time being. Now, for what it's worth, we think probably the first rate cut in the US coming around Q2. Bank of England, ECB coming a bit later, probably Q3 for the for the ECB, maybe a bit after that for the, the Bank of England. But the key point is that central bankers are not going to be drawn on this for the time being. And we just this past week, we've put out some analysis showing why the Fed is going to be in a, a better position than the ECB and Bank of England to, to cut rates sooner. Uh, I'll post that on the podcast page. It largely comes down to, to what's happening in labor markets and with wage inflation. Staying on the central banks, there was a time we wouldn't even be discussing the Bank of Japan and rate moves there, but but that's a mark, I guess, of just how extraordinary this post-pandemic inflation environment is. Talk us through the latest on the BOJ and, and what's changed on the policy outlook. Well, a couple of things have changed on the policy outlook. I think one, of course, is the weakness of the yen. The other is the fact that policymakers seem to feel increasingly comfortable with the idea that the years of deflation are are behind them. And I think they sense a window of opportunity here to get interest rates out of negative territory. If you're a central banker, negative interest rates are an anomaly. There's there's thousands of years of financial history. Interest rates are not supposed to be negative. So I think they'll be trying to use this window to get interest rates back, if not well into positive territory, then at least back to, to zero. We'll have more to say about this in our Bank of Japan watch, but the debate we're having in our Asia team is this is a window for, for the BOJ to get interest rates out of negative territory back to zero. They're not going to go far into positive territory, though, things. Remember that they, they were widely criticized in, in the early 2000s for tightening policy prematurely and sending the Japanese economy back into recession. So I think they'll be mindful of, of that experience. But this is an opportunity to, to try and get rates at least out of negative territory. And I think they'll, they'll try and take it. Now, the communications around this are quite tricky. And the Bank of Japan, of course, will be scarred by the experience of the early 2000s. And we've seen some of those kind of tensions start to play out over the past day or so in conflicting communications from the the Bank of Japan. So I don't think this is a slam dunk. However, I do think that by the time we get to the back end of this year, start of next, they will be trying to move, like I say, to to get rates out of negative territory and perhaps a move in, in January is most likely. Sort of related to Japan, other key news this week, I think, is that the European Union has started probing Chinese electric vehicle imports. Now, a lot of people are drawing comparisons with what happened with Japanese car imports 40-odd years ago, and steps taken then by by the US and European authorities to, to keep those cars out. So are we going back to the future? Should we expect a replay of the 1980s? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting developments over the, the past week. The reason I think is interesting is because it encompasses several strands that are and themes that are running through the global economy. There's, there's clearly an industrial strategy point here. Almost 30% of European imports of cars from China are made by European firms. These are European firms producing in China, then shipping to Europe. So they're trying to push back against that. But there's also a climate angle. These are electric vehicles. And there's also a, a fracturing angle. We've talked before in this podcast about US-China fracturing. Europe clearly aligns with the US when it comes to, to fracturing. And this is about not allowing China to, to, to start to impinge upon what is a core European industry. And for that reason, I think the, the comparisons with Japan in the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s are misplaced. Back then, we had voluntary export restrictions. This was essentially the exporting country, in this case, Japan, volunteered to to restrict exports to, to Europe in order that 
Europe didn't impose tariffs on it. And those negotiations were helped by the fact that Japan, although it was an economic rival, was a was a political ally. Clearly, China is in a much different position, and the the fracturing of the U.S. China relationship has made the, the the politics around this more difficult. There's also a climate angle as well. If if Europe is serious about hitting its its climate goals, then it's going to need more electric vehicles, and at the moment, it doesn't have the capacity to to build those domestically. It's trying to get there, but in the if it's serious about getting there soon, then it's going to need to rely on imports from China too. So there's lots of competing angles here, which is what makes the, the comparisons with the, the late 1980s and the early 1990s very different. I think the really interesting point, though, is that at the moment, this is about imports of electric vehicles. There's nothing about the battery technology that underpins those. And that's where China is really increasingly dominant and Europe is falling behind. And it's the technology that is the kind of crucial component here. And I think that will become an increasing elements of, of US-China fracturing and Europe, I think, will start to be pulled in, in the direction of the US on that. Neil Searing there talking China, EVs and Europe. Andrew Kenningham, our chief Europe economist, recently put out analysis on what Europe can do to counter EV imports. I'll post that on the podcast page. I also mentioned that labour market analysis. It's by Ariane Curtis from our global team and makes clear why the Fed isn't in the same boat as the ECB and Bank of England when it comes to policy easing. We'll have much more to say on all of this in our central bank drop-in. That's one of our short-form webinars. It's this coming Thursday, just after the Bank of England decisions announced. I'll post details of that briefing on the podcast page. We also spoke about oil prices on our last episode, and I see Brent at $94 a barrel as I'm speaking. Is this a threat to the global inflation outlook? Join our drop-in this coming Tuesday the 19th. It's all about oil markets, supply-demand dynamics, the price implications, and what this all means for inflation. Event details on the page. Now, at least some of the debate around whether the US economy is heading for recession has been focused on a discrepancy between GDP and GDI, that's gross domestic income. They're both activity measures, but they rely on different data sources. In theory, they should tell the same story, but currently they aren't, and they aren't in a big way. GDP has risen for the past four quarters, and it's 2.5% higher than a year ago, whereas GDI has contracted in two of the past four quarters and is 0.5% lower than a year ago. That's from a recent report by Deputy Chief North America Economist Stephen Brown, which draws some worrying conclusions about what this discrepancy could all mean. I spoke to Stephen earlier this week, and I started by asking him to explain the difference between GDP and GDI. I'm sure lots of people have heard of GDI and GDP before, especially GDP. Obviously, that's the one most economists talk about. Now, GDI is supposed to measure exactly the same thing, but essentially the size of the economy, just from a different angle. So for GDP, we, we count up total expenditure on all goods and services. For GDI, we look at the total income derived from selling all those goods and services. So because one person's income is another person's spending, they, they should be the same thing. The problem is that for, for the US in particular, and, and generally this is the case in, in most countries, but they, they're not equal because they're calculated from different data sources. So whereas, say, the GDP data are looking at some of the activity variables or, say, the volume of cars sold, the GDI data will be looking at uh, car dealers' incomes, their tax returns, for instance. So we can get these discrepancies, and and generally the, the discrepancies are, are revised, but it's not always the case. And even once 
the revisions they're in, GDP and GDI can still be telling us different stories about economic growth. And at the moment, we are seeing one of these discrepancies, quite a striking one based on the historical record. The, the chart in your analysis shows very clearly you've got GDP pointing up and, and GDI pointing down. Your analysis walks through the historical revisions that have happened when we've had these discrepancies, how these data get revised after the fact. But that record isn't isn't particularly encouraging in terms of the growth outlook, right? I mean, you show that it's usually the GDP data that, that gets changed. Talk a bit about what the, the historical record could be telling us. Yes, exactly. So it is normally the case that if we have these discrepancies between GDI growth and GDP growth, and it's often the case that GDP growth gets revised to be closer to GDI growth. But it doesn't normally work in the other direction. So these discrepancies don't normally tell us as much about revisions to GDI growth. And there's certainly been some important instances in the last couple of decades where GDI has sent sort of an ominous warning. So just before the global financial crisis, GDI weakened in 2007. It fell by 0.3% over that year. Even now, after we've had data revisions, GDP still rose in, in 2007. But we obviously all know how that ended up. And that's not the only time. We, we've also had plenty of other times when GDP growth has been revised down to match GDI growth. There is one point that should be mentioned. Well, two points, really. The first being that the pandemic has thrown up some some obviously weird things with economic data and economic coverage around the world. And, and the GDI versus GDP date is no exception. So we did have a discrepancy in 2022 as well. And in contrast to the norm, GDI was actually revised up towards GDP in 2022. So it could be the case that, again, this sort of hist historical record further back is, is sending a bit of a misleading warning signal. And, and another point to mention is that one of the reasons for the discrepancy this time is that GDI does include the Federal Reserve's profits, or more accurately at, at the moment, the Federal Reserve's losses. So those are weighing on the GDI measure, but those don't really tell us anything at all about the, the strength of the economy. You know, They're included in corporate profits, but obviously the Fed's losses are not going to impact business investment. So there are a couple of reasons why you, know, you could write off part of the weakness of GDI this time. But our big concern is really that even once you take into account some of these factors, GDI is still looking quite weak. It's, it's fallen for a couple of quarters early, earlier this year. So it could be post-pandemic, data anomaly. We've seen lots of those. There could be lots of noise in the data. You've talked about the, the Fed interest earnings. So strip it all away, $64,000 question. What does this all tell us about the US economic outlook? The market's been pricing out the idea of a US recession. Uh, in fact, we're downplaying its likelihood as well. But read your analysis. You come away with a sense of, you know, hang on, things really aren't so rosy, are they? Yes, exactly. As I mentioned, we you know, even once we take into account some of these special factors, GDI growth is still looking quite weak. Um, the Philadelphia Fed creates its own indicator using a blend of both GDI and GDP that shouldn't be subject to some of these issues with GDI. And, and that one called GDP Plus has also been quite weak in the last few quarters. So we are getting the sense that the, the economic data are, are looking a bit troubling in some aspects, notwithstanding a, a bit of strength lately in some of the activity variables. The other thing we've highlighted to clients is that the, the tax data are looking quite weak. So tax revenues have fallen for three quarters running. So overall government, both federal, local and state. Again, there's a partly one-off reason for that. California delayed its tax deadline in the second quarter, but that should only explain the weakness in the second quarter, whereas we're, we're, we've seen falling tax revenues before that. And we only really see that in a recession or 
when there's been a big change in tax policy, which hasn't been the case lately. So we we are seeing these warning signs. And I think it it's just reason for caution that even though a lot of forecasters have been taking out their, their recession forecast, we are seeing these concerning sides, which have typically sort of foretold broader weakness in the past. So we're, we're still predicting a, a negative quarter for GDP later this year. We think the labor market will continue to loosen. Whether that meets a strict criteria of a recession set by the NBER or not is, is going to be another question. But I think the key point is it's all going to be enough to contribute to disinflationary pressure and ultimately persuade the Fed to start cutting interest rates next year. So this idea in the market that the uh, that a recession bullet has has been dodged smacks a bit of complacency at this point. I think that's the case. Certainly when we're talking about tax revenues falling, some of the data looking weak, even if it doesn't all look weak, uh, it's far too soon to write off the risks altogether. And part of this is that pe- I think people get a bit too hung up on the R word. Whether growth is minus 0.1% or plus 0.1% can determine whether we call it a recession or not. But the implications for how much spare capacity is opening up, considering the US growth potential growth rate is around 2% year on year, you know, both scenarios imply a large amount of spare capacity is opening up and that inf- inflation should keep on declining. And that's really the, the key part here is is what's going to happen to inflation and therefore interest rates. Let's stay on this, this question of the US economic outlook, specifically because I know that you and the team are busily preparing our Q4 report. That's going to be out in the coming week or two. Can you give us a, a flavor of what that report's going to say? Yes, yeah, sure. So, the key message is given some of these concerns we've been speaking about today, it's it's still very likely we're going to see economic growth slow sharply in the coming quarters uh, and even turn negative. The, the key point we've been making, though, is you know we have to accept that there have been quite a few upside surprises to the economic data in the last couple of quarters. We and other forecasters have to push back our recession calls. But the, the key point really is that we are seeing more concrete signs when it comes to the labor market and the inflation data. So we're already seeing some signs of the labor market loosening, particularly in the vacancy rate, the job quits data. That all suggests that wage growth is going to slow quite sharply over the rest of this year and into 2024. At the same time, we're seeing disinflationary pressure, particularly in terms of underlying prices still coming through and and the forward-looking indicators there look quite encouraging. So even if the economy does avoid a recession, there's still a, a very good chance that the Fed will begin cutting interest rates early next year and ultimately cut them by much more than markets are currently pricing in over the the course of the next 12 to 18 months. That was Stephen Brown on the US Economic Outlook. Look out for the team's Q4 report and Stephen's report on GDI, which I'll post on the page. But that's it for this week. All the analysis and events discussed in this episode are on our website, capitaleconomics.com. We're also just a week out from our spotlight report and data all around artificial intelligence. You won't want to miss that. It's got lots of crunchy conclusions about what that means for the global economy and markets. Uh, CE advanced clients get the report and all the underlying data and much, much more. So get in touch to find out more about our premium platform. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. 
Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.